All right. We're gonna do it the scan away. I'm gonna suck your brain dry. Transmitting from the concrete catacombs of Manhattan, New York City, this is the Mars Magazine Podcast. My name is Adario Strange, and welcome back. I've been in the astral, or on the astral plane, in my astral form, and uh, I have now returned in my corporeal state, in my podcast corporeal state, to bring tidings of science fiction, technology, and science once again. This episode's a special one. We have Neil deGrasse Tyson and Carolyn Porco. As guests later in the podcast, Neil deGrasse Tyson, you might know from his work at the Hayden Planetarium, where he's the director, and uh, he's just a general astrophysicist and cool guy. He hosted uh, Cosmos on um, the Carl Sagan, I guess, inspired program Cosmos on Fox, and I think they actually got renewed. And Carolyn Porco is a planetary scientist who worked on the Cassini mission, And she also worked on the Voyager mission from 1977, which is something that's still ongoing. And we're going to talk about that later in the podcast. But first, a bit about science fiction. This is, I would say, the golden age of science fiction. Not just science fiction in terms of literature, but I'm speaking of film and TV. Before we get into what we're going to talk about, I want to make a note. We don't really talk too much here on the Mars podcast about comic book movies, even though there's a lot of, you know, science fiction involved, you know, from everything from Iron Man to the most recent uh, Black Panther and Wakanda and Vibranium, all that kind of stuff. So I kind of want to explain why I don't really talk about comic books too much. Um, I'm a huge comic book fan. Uh, I would say Marvel is my, that's my touchstone. I grew up on Marvel. I dabbled with DC and some smaller comic book companies, but really Marvel is my touchstone. And for me, I guess when I think of Marvel, I think of kind of a mix of science fiction and magic and Uh, And by magic, I mean the occult, you know, presto, changeo, spiritual, you know, sword and sorcery, that kind of thing, and soap operas. And it's kind of this ongoing soap opera that involves all these things. So, you know, when I think of science fiction in the the traditional sense, or even in the, the moving forward sense, in the way that I like to discuss science fiction, I more think of science fiction uh, as kind of like separate and apart from the comic book world, even though there are a number of intersections there. So that's just an explanation of that. So we're not ignoring all these different comic book movies that are out there. I'm aware of them. I'm watching them. I'm enjoying them. I enjoyed uh, Black Panther. Uh, A lot of people talk about my name. Yes, I I saw Doctor Strange, liked it. Uh, I think they got the aesthetic right. Should have been darker. Infinity War. I will be seeing Infinity War. Can't wait. Thanos, great character from Marvel lore. But this is a different corridor. This is about the science fiction that you pick up in novels. This is about the science fiction that requires more thought beyond, I guess, like a soap opera style, you know, kind of episodic touch. 
So I'll just leave it at that. So with that, I want to talk about Annihilation. Let me see him. He's extremely ill. You have to tell me where he was, what he was doing. It was his decision to go in. It's something they termed the Shimmer. We've sent in drones and teams of people, but nothing comes back. But something has. You're a biologist. You served in the military. If I knew what happened, I could save his life. The boundary's getting bigger. It's expanding. We're talking cities, states. You need to know what's inside. So do I. It's beautiful. Check this out. It's like they're stuck in a continuous mutation. Anything interesting in there? No. Annihilation. 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 I love the name of this of this film. Released in the US, Canada, and China in theaters. It was uh taken straight to Netflix after 17 days, which from my understanding was something that the director, Alex Garland, was not happy about. It stars Natalie Portman, Benedict Wong, super character actor Benedict Wong. Love his work. I even loved him in the recent um, Black Mirror. I think it was Hated in the Nation. Uh, Oscar Isaac, you know him from uh, Ex Machina, a film that gets a lot of praise. I have to admit, I wasn't a big fan. Jennifer Jason Lee, one of my favorite actors who I think wasn't really utilized well in this film. They gave her a great kind of entry and then they kind of don't do much with her. Um, I think she she's an amazing actor and she just, I don't, maybe it's on the editing room floor. Uh, also Gina Rodriguez. I think she is, uh, many of you will know her from TV. And Tessa Thompson, my Valkyrie, my Valkyrie queen from Thor Ragnarok. This cast is amazing. The film itself was just, it was okay. The world building, I would say, was something along the lines of psychedelic. Or for reference, if you haven't seen the trailer, just think back to the film uh, Contact, the film about wormholes. Think about Contact and kind of some of the psychedelica involved in that film, you know, kind of psychedelics mixed with aliens and space. But in this case, there is, I think, a very interesting concept of a alien object that contains a life form that lands on our planet and kind of takes over a part of the planet and begins to expand. And I'm not going to spoil anything for you. Don't worry. No spoilers. But suffice to say, this is, this is a meditative film. Uh, it's not action-packed. And I don't think it really covers a lot of ground that hasn't been covered before. But there are some great moments. Um, I also feel like actually Natalie Portman is just decent. And I'm and I like some of her other work. But in this film, she's just decent. I think the most fascinating thing for me in this film was really just the world building. There is a horrific moment that harkens back to, I would say, the 80s version of the thing. There is a bear with a cry from the bowels of hell that will live with you for the rest of your days if you buy into the movie. Again, this is all suspension of disbelief if you buy into the movie. Uh, I will suggest that you do buy in. It's a good watch. 
And I think it represents the more intelligent or more um, thoughtful side of science fiction, Annihilation. Next, I want to delve into something that I think has been severely under-discussed, under-praised, and that is Star Trek Discovery. Is this how Starfleet wins the war? Genocide. You want to do this here? Fine. Terms of atrocity are convenient after the fact. The Klingons are on the verge of wiping out the Federation. Yes, but ask yourself, why did you put this mission in the hands of a Terran and why the secrecy? It's because you know it's not who we are. It very soon will be. We do not have the luxury of principle. That is all we have, Admiral. Do we need a mutiny today to prove who we are? Set 10 years before the original series, that is the series starring or featuring Kirk and Spock, Leonard Nimoy and William Shatner. Uh, this is 10, this is supposed to be set 10 years before that. And for hardcore Star Trek heads, this is after Star Trek Enterprise with the captain Scott Bakula. Star Trek Discovery stars Sonequa Martin-Green. Many of you will know her from her work on The Walking Dead, the show that will not die, the show that will turn drinking a cup of water and walking down a path into an entire 30 minutes of an episode. I don't know what the hell they're doing on The Walking Dead, but that's another story. Uh, uh, Sonequa Martin-Green, love her work. Uh, Michelle Yeoh, yes, the Michelle Yeoh. Uh, from international blockbusters that you've likely seen over the years. Uh, and they actually let her do some amazing martial arts in this film. And she's just, she's a badass in this film, or in this film, in this series. Uh, love her in this. Jason Isaacs, a British actor, I'd, say, I'd call him a British character actor, who you will instantly recognize. Rain Wilson plays, uh, this is a bit of a spoiler, Rain Wilson plays Harry Mudd. And if you remember, if that name sounds familiar, that's the guy who brought the triples onto the original Enterprise, you know, with Kirk. So that's a kind of interesting tidbit that they threw in for us. And an actor that I'm not that familiar with, Mary Chifo, plays Laurel, a Klingon, I guess you would call a lieutenant. I can't remember the exact rank, but behind a ton of makeup and... Uh, you know, just a giant costume and half of her dialogue having to be spoken in Klingon, which, you know, yes, I know some of you out there can speak Klingon. Most of us cannot. She delivers an incredibly complex performance. Scary. I actually tweeted this at her and she responded and I was really happy for the response because, you know, just these actors need to know when their work is appreciated and it's good to know that they're paying attention. She, she just, she just delivers a really complex performance, particularly given the fact that she's behind so much makeup and she's not really the star of the film or of the series. It's really, I would say green Martin green is the Martin green and Michelle Yeoh, I would say are the kind of the leads of the series. The key here or the catch is that it's behind a paywall. You have to sign up for CBS All Access, which is a new streaming service, and it's six bucks a month. Is this worth it? If you're going to binge it, and if you're just real, a really, if you're a hardcore Star Trek head, if you haven't already seen this, you're probably not a Star Trek 
hardcore Star Trek head. Uh, most have already seen it. If you have not, I would say yes, it's worth it. And if you don't want to stick it, stick with it. You can you, know, you can always uh, cancel and just you know binge for a month or two. What I love about this Star Trek Discovery is that it's dark, and I feel like Star Trek has always suffered from being. I always talk to my Star Wars, my hardcore Star Wars friends about the differences between Star Trek and Star Wars, being that. Star Wars is kind of a space opera, and it's light. A lot of it is laced with comedy, and it never gets too dark. Even with, um, I think uh, the darkest I have ever seen Star Wars get was in the recent Star Wars Rogue One. Spoilers for Star Wars Rogue One. There is a part where uh, Darth Vader boards a ship, and he is walking down a hall, just dispatching a bunch of, I guess, rebel scum. <laughs> and it is one of the darkest moments I've ever seen in the history of Star Wars. And it was amazing. But Star Wars does, generally doesn't get that dark. Uh, you get your furry creatures, you get your cr- cute robots. And what I've always liked about Star Trek is that it's about politics. It's about race. It's about culture. It's about gender. It's about gender fluidity. It's about the things we think about and read about but aren't always expressed in television and film, complex ideas. And Star Trek goes there. This is another reason why one of my you know favorite franchises is The Twilight Zone, because it's another franchise that I always bring up on the Mars Magazine podcast. It's, it's one of the properties that I think it's what science fiction does best, which is explore sensitive topics in a deep and meaningful way and helps us to think about them in ways we might not have otherwise. So the problem for this, or for me, with Star Trek for so long has been that although Star Trek has this great palette of political intrigue and kind of social issues, remember the original series had, you know, the first or if not the first, one of the first interracial interracial kisses, the uh the the deck of of the Star Trek Enterprise had a Russian, a Japanese person, uh, a Scottish person, an African. You know, it was like this just United Nations right front and center. It was great. And with all these things that, you know, Star Trek tackles, they never get too dark. They don't get dark enough. They kind of try to go there. They always go right up to the edge, but they never go that far. And what I like about Star Trek Discovery is that Star Trek Discovery is pretty dark. Now, it's not rated R. You know, you're not, this isn't, I mean, you know, you can watch this with, uh, if you have kids, you can watch this with kids, I think, if they're not too delicate of a snowflake in terms of violent content, and if they're not too young. This is not rated R necessarily, but it's, I would say, darker than your normal Star Trek fare. And I think it serves the property well. It takes us into, when, I remember when Star Trek Enterprise first came about, they went a little dark too. But I think because they were on a traditional network, they could never get but so dark. I think because it's on streaming, they're trying to get a little bit darker. They're still, it's, this is still CBS. So it's not like you're about to hear a bunch of expletives tossed around. And I mean, I think, did I see some nudity? I don't think I saw nudity, but yeah, it's, yeah, it's still CBS. So I'm not expecting nudity, curse words, and rated R level violence where you're holding a, a beating heart in someone's hand or something like that. Although I, 
it, this wouldn't surprise me actually if I saw this on uh, Star Trek Discovery. It seems like they're really pushing to the edge of where Star Trek has gone in terms of darkness. Beyond that, I'm not going to divulge any spoilers. I will just say, I will make one very important note, which is you got to get past the first two episodes. The first two episodes are horrendous. They look like they were done by a completely different production company. I don't know what happened. I don't know if there was some staff change, crew change, or just, I don't know what happened, but the vis- it looks visually different. The acting sounds, the dialogue is sounds horrible, which makes the acting look poor or come across poorly. It's just the whole thing. The first two episodes almost made me quit. But from episode three on, this is just an amazing, this is possibly, I would say this is number three all time for me. And I know that's, this, this sounds like I'm saying, you know, making a big statement, but I, I, this is, it's number three all time for me. I would say my favorite in all of the Star Trek franchise would be Star Trek The Next Generation with uh, Picard and his cohorts. And number two would be the original series, Kirk and crew. And then I think this, I think this is number three. Assuming they can keep it up, this is really, this is one of the strongest Star Trek looks I've ever seen. So give it a look. Yes, there's a paywall, but if you like intelligent thoughtful science fiction, it may be worth the cost. So now let's get into Netflix, the Ragnarok for Hollywood, for TV, for the TV industry. I feel like we need to begin to call Netflix the sci-fi channel. Now, the real sci-fi channel, which changed its name to S-Y-F-I-F-Y, instead of sci-fi the way, you know, the normal spelling years ago, uh, the normal the, or the the actual sci-fi channel, they, they've they had a few breakout hits, most notably uh, Battlestar Galactica, which was amazing. But other than that, there hasn't been much. They're into zombies now, and I know they were doing wrestling for a while. I don't know if they're still doing that. And they are doing a few series. They did the Sharknado thing. Yeah, I'll be honest, it's not, a, it's not something I watch very often. But Netflix, on the other hand... Netflix is becoming something of the default science fiction channel. So let's get into it. We're going to start from best to worst with three of their recent properties. And we're going to start with Altered Carbon. Your body is not who you are. You shed it like a snake sheds its skin. You transfer the human consciousness between bodies. To live eternal life. How long have I been down? 250 years. You are the property of Bancroft Industries. You've been provided with this body, which came equipped with military-grade neurochem and combat muscle memory. Altered Carbon, which stars Joel Kinnaman and... If the name doesn't ring a bell, his face might. He was one of the leads in The Killing, and he also played um, the post-traumatic stress disorder veteran, war veteran, in House of Cards, The one of the most recent seasons, I think the last season of House of Cards. The guy who's trying to run for president, who's a war veteran, you know, and he uses VR to try to kind of calm himself down, but it doesn't really work. He's the lead. And 
basically the premise, the main premise is that people have become immortal because they now have the ability to switch bodies because their consciousness and their memories are on a tiny chip called a stack. And you can essentially grow new bodies and you don't have to keep the same body. You can become a man, you can become a woman, you can become black, white, Asian, old, young. Uh, you can look any way you can become a child. You can become anything as long as your chip, your, your stack is intact. And so what this does is this gives us a great premise that spans like hundreds of years, a world where we planet hop. It really is a beautiful, just if you don't get into the plot, which I found to be okay. It wasn't particularly sophisticated, but it was okay. But even if you don't get into the plot, it is an incredibly beautiful series to watch. Um, but the acting performances are surprisingly strong. Most of the actors I am unfamiliar with, but I am familiar with Joel Kinnaman, and he does a pretty good job. But he really, even though he's the lead, I would say he's more, even though they kind of put him in the lead role, it's really more of an ensemble cast. I would say this is the best, other than, of course, Black Mirror. This is the best of Netflix when they try to do science fiction. I'm not positive, but I think Altered Carbon is either based on a book or a graphic novel. I'm not familiar with the property uh, outside of this series, but I am interested now to go investigate because some of the ideas, you know, there are a lot of ideas explored in the series that are fascinating. Beyond immortality via kind of this consciousness chip, there's also holographics, augmented reality, um, artificial intelligences that are self-aware, that have their own conversations with one another in private spaces, and they talk about humans. And it's really interesting because it's like one of the few times um, in a previous episode of the Mars Magazine podcast, we talked about uh, the Forbin Project, Colossus, the Forbin Project. And part of the plot, and this is an old film, but I highly recommend it. And part of the the, the idea of the film is that at a certain point, two computers communicate with each other across uh, from different sides of, of the planet. But instead of communicating in English or in numbers that are decipherable by humans, they make up their own language. And so they begin to have a conversation that we as humans are cut out of. And it leads to a very scary state of things. I won't spoil that film for you, but I highly recommend it. So what happens, there's one part of Altered Carbon where the same thing happens. They're basically around a poker table. And the way they talk about humans, it's how gods would talk about humans. It's really fascinating. And, and Altered Carbon just touches upon that little slice of life, artificial life, very briefly. But there are a number of concepts uh, and visual design elements and just things that are touched upon in this series that are fascinating. Highly recommend it. Ultra Carbon. So now let's move on to the second tier down. This isn't the best. This isn't the worst. This is somewhere in the middle. And that's the Cloverfield Paradox. Starring Gugu Mbatha-Raw, David Aoyelo, uh, Zhang Ziyi, Chris O'Dowd, who, if you are a fan of British TV, You'll remember him from the IT crowd, which is one of my favorite British TV series. Um, they all come together for The Cloverfield Paradox, directed by Julius Ona, who I believe this is his first big film. And guess what? It shows. It's a 
uneven hodgepodge of ideas and set pieces that in some cases don't seem to be directly related to one another. I would say the biggest complaint I've heard from science fiction fans about this film is that not enough is explained. When people talk about hard science fiction, you know, generally they're talking about literature that kind of explains the science and technology behind what we're reading. And I think on screen that more relates to just give us some theory, you know, show us that you read a few books and spoke to a few scientists and and now give us your science fiction take on that. And with this, it's kind of just, oh, there's kind of like an unlimited energy source engine that we're going to test uh, while we orbit space. Uh, and then when things go wrong, we're kind of like flipped to some alternate version of, well, I don't want to give too much away, but basically things go awry and it looks more like a horror movie and not a science fiction horror movie, like a, like some sort of demonic evil, like, you know what it reminded me of? It reminded me of um, Event Horizon, uh, which starred Sam Neill and Lawrence Fishburne, an old science fiction film that I think the idea involved wormholes, dimensional, interdimensional travel. But at some point in that film, things got evil. And the idea was that it, it just seemed like, you know, the devil or demons were lurking in space in that film. And that's kind of what seems to be going on here. I think the uh, good part of this is it tells us what happens or it helps us understand what was happening in the first two installments of the Cloverfield franchise, which was Cloverfield, the original Cloverfield, which was notable for its kind of handheld camera trope throughout the film. And then the follow-up to that, which was 10 Cloverfield Lane, directed by uh, Dan Trachtenberg, um, one of my favorite former podcasters. Uh, he used to do the Totally Rad Show. Love that show. They stopped doing that. He moved on to directing, and he knocked it out of the park. Did a great job with 10 Cloverfield Lane. He was also a first-time director, but I think because that film was essentially what they would call in TV terms a bottle episode, meaning they, they kept it mostly in one room or just a couple of rooms. I feel like although there are limita limitations and challenges to that kind of filming, there are also strengths, particularly if you're a first-time director, to doing it that way. There's not as many moving parts, and you can focus more on the acting performances, and you can. it seems like it would be more like a stage play. So even though he was a first-time director, he really did a great job, and the, the reaction to the film was great. Whereas this film, The Cloverfield Paradox, this is something that I think a more seasoned blockbuster director would generally handle. It involves multiple locations. It involves a giant space station. It involves, I don't want to say too much, but it involves like some fairly large shifts and 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 requires you to really have a pretty huge suspension of disbelief on, you know, many levels. And while I like the premise, the execution just wasn't that great. That said, the reason why I'm only ranking it second and not at the bottom is because I really like the concept and I like the Cloverfield franchise. I like what they do, what they've done with that franchise. And I really hope that the, the failure for this to connect with audiences doesn't mean that we're at the, the end of Cloverfield. I want to see what happens after, and I'm not going to spoil 
the Cloverfield Paradox. But the end of Cloverfield Paradox is pretty, it's pretty interesting. It's not a great ending per se, but if you're into the franchise itself, it's, it's an ending that kind of takes us back to the beginning, but you now, I, I want more personally. Something interesting, something else interesting about this is that uh, there was a lot of talk about how this was considered for a theatrical release, but then it went straight to Netflix. I have to say, I get it. This is not something that I would necessarily say was baked enough for a theatrical release. So I think Netflix was the perfect place for it. So Cloverfield Paradox, check it out. Solid B-level science fiction. And with that, now let's talk Mute. Directed by Duncan Jones, who you may know uh, from his work on Moon back in 2009, which starred Sam Rockwell. This is, <laughs> well, let me just say who's in it. It stars Alexander Skarsgård, uh, Paul Rudd, and Justin Thoreau. I mean, I love these guys. Paul Rudd, I love them in Ant-Man. I like a lot of his other work, you know, previous work. Uh, Justin Thoreau, you may know him as the lead, the, the police officer in The Leftovers on HBO. He did an amazing job on that series. I think he's an, a very talented actor. And Alexander Skarsgård, I mean, he's just, he's everywhere and he's just, his talent is undeniable. So there you have it. You have the director of a, a, a very solid science fiction film in Moon and three actors who are undeniably powerful and resonate and they have their own existing fan bases. So what went wrong? Well, honestly, it's a mystery. It's mute. We, we spend a lot of time with Alexander Skarsgård, who can't speak, hence the title of the film. And so a lot of his dialogue, quote unquote, dialogue is written or through hand signals. There's a lot of club scenes. He's like some bartender and he's like looking for his girlfriend. And everything about this was just, it seemed either rushed or not well thought out. Even the world building, it, it seems like they were going for a Blade Runner aesthetic. But when you have something as strong as Altered Carbon on, on Netflix, you can't show us mute and expect us to swallow that and, and just keep keep moving forward. I mean, it, there's a strip club. This was, I, I hesitate to even bring this up. There's a strip club with human and robot strippers, okay? But the robot strippers, they're not like replicants. They're not like these kind of stiff moving humanoids that kind of look vaguely human. No, these are actual chrome, ridiculously proportioned, you know, in terms of like breasts and ass and, you know, everything. Just ridiculous. I mean, they're, I'm sure, I know for a fact that they are humans with proportions close to them. But I mean, just it, it, these are deliberately exaggerated robots. And it just looked ridiculous. There's one there's one part where the robot is twerking. It just it was just it was, it was ridiculous. Um, <laughs> I mean, I love these actors so much. And Duncan Jones. By the way, Duncan Jones, if you're not familiar um, with Moon, you may know his father, who is or who was David Bowie, the rock pop star, uh, androgynous, science fiction loving, just by all accounts, really great dude. That's his, his pop, uh, his late pop. This was a great collaboration of talents, 
but the result is something that I cannot even, I can't recommend if you were, let's just say you had the flu, right? Or you had food poisoning and you're down for, let's say three or four days and you just need to binge some stuff. You need some brain food. You need some visual eye candy. You need some stuff to just get you through, right? I can't recommend mute. I would say mute. I would press mute on mute, the visual mute, whatever the visual equivalent of mute, the blindfold, I guess. I would blindfold you before I would subject you to mute. That said, I like that Netflix is continuing to take chances on new ideas, new directors. They're experimenting. I love this. And not everything's going to be a hit. Not everything's going to be a home run. And so if Netflix will do you know, uh, a Marvel series and they'll, you know, throw out a ton of money to do kind of like more, you know, mainstream pop oriented properties. It's really refreshing to know they'll also give a, a chance, give a try to something like Altered Carbon and yes, even Mute. You know, there will be a Mute down the road or something like a Mute that will give us something that we will enjoy or that I'll enjoy. Maybe you guys will enjoy it. Uh, so that's the story with Netflix. It is the new science fiction. It's the new sci-fi channel. And hopefully they'll continue to keep taking chances. So with that, let's get into my conversation with Neil deGrasse Tyson, the science bro, the funniest scientist I've ever met. Although I once had a long conversation with Michio Kaku, who's uh, also a, a theoretical physicist known for his, you know, a lot of his work on superstring theory or some of his theories on superstring theory. Michio Kaku is pretty funny, but Neil deGrasse Tyson, this is a funny guy. And I thought he'd be bigger. When I met him in person, I was actually bigger than him. I'm 6'3". I thought the guy was like this, I was here, he's like this big football player looking guy. He's actually normal size. Uh, or maybe I'm just giant myself and I still don't realize that. Carolyn Porco, just, I could have spoken to her forever. She was just so engaging, so full of life. Uh, this woman has been working on space missions that, and you know, if you follow space missions, they don't always pay off immediately. Like th these are things where you work on it for many years and then you see the payoff sometimes a decade or two later. And this woman's been working on space missions since the 70s. And she is just as, I can't imagine. If she had more life and vibrance uh, in the 70s, I can't imagine it because she is so full of life and energy and, and excitement about space and our exploration of space that uh, listening to her, you'll, it, it'll get you excited. Uh, so we sat down at the Hayden Platitarium and they were great enough, good enough to give me their time. This is my conversation with Neil deGrasse Tyson and Carolyn Porco. Okay, so this is Adario Strange here with uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson, astrophysicist, and Carolyn Porco, uh, planetary scientist. And we're going to talk about the new documentary. Is that the correct way to describe yes. it? Documentary uh, celebrating the 40th anniversary, or I guess the, the passing of the 40th year since the launch of the Voyager missions. And I think the first one was number two, Voyager 2, right? Yeah, don't get hung up on that. It was just August and September. Why is it, is it one that went later? Is that because they knew it would go out farther? Yes. Is it was, it is was that... launched with greater speed. Gotcha. And so they, they knew it was much better to, to name the second 
the first to be launched, number two, rather than wait until they got into their right configuration flying through the solar system and then have Voyager 2 arrive before Voyager 1. And within the, the community, the scientific community, which one, I mean, they're both important, but which one would you say is kind of like... Were, no, they were... Well, Voyager 2 went on to Uranus and Neptune. So it's the one you could say that did more of the work. Right. But Voyager 1 was very important because <clears throat> Voyager 2 was nine months behind. And Voyager 1 would find certain things, and then based on what they found, they would immediately turn around and rejigger the plans for Voyager 2 to be responsive. So they, they really worked in as a team. But Vo it was only Voyager 2 past Saturn. Okay, and so now for the film, I should probably know some of this. Can you guys give me like a sense of like what your involvement in the production was or what connections you have to the producers or the production? I was on the mission. And I was just one of the talking heads that was uh, asked to come in. There's a, there's a lot of people in this program that were asked to, you know, give interviews. And the, the story is carried along by their, by their comments. They're, they did have to interject in certain places. The executive producers had to interject in certain places narration because they felt, I don't know if I should be saying this, but they felt that the original documentary mm -hmm. didn't have enough science in it. So... They wanted to add in more science, so I think they added, I know they added in narration, um, some narration, and I think that's where you get most of the science, but it's really, the film really is kind of like a social history of what Voyager was, because it wasn't just a scientific mission, it was, and it was that, of course, it opened up the solar system to us. We didn't know what the outer solar system was really like until Voyager flew through it, it took 12 years to fly through it in an odyssey, you know, like one flyby that was two weeks long, and then years would go by, and another flyby that was a week and a half long, and then on and on. But it also was, it carried this cultural artifact. You know about that, this record, the golden record, the golden yeah. record with sound. There's one in each one. Right. Same record. Images of Earth, images of people, life forms on Earth. Greetings in different languages, different music, and it, so it represented us. It was the message that said to the universe, we want you to know us. You know, we lived. Because it might, it might outlast us. Now, I, again, this is probably covered in, in the documentary, but I mean, were you, I, I thought, were you, you joined in 80? I joined after, well, I was, I, I was a graduate student in 1980 when Voyager passed Saturn. And graduate students are very valuable because they're kind of like cheap labor. <laughs> so two very important topics fell in my lap because I was associated with someone on the Voyager imaging team. And it turned out, just an example of the fact that I've said many times, I lead a charmed existence. One of the topics I did for my graduate thesis, my doctoral dissertation, was to work on a set of rings that were found embedded in the rings of Saturn. These narrow, sharp-edged rings that happened also to be eccentric. They were virtually identical to the rings that encircle Uranus that had been found in 1977, the year that Voyager launched. So after I got my degree, which was in 1983, Voyager at Saturn, Voyager 2 at Saturn was, was over. Caltech, right? Yeah, Caltech. Voyager 2 at Saturn was over by two years. I was invited to be an official team member of the Voyager imaging team so I could help plan the sequences of images that we were going to take at Uranus of the rings because I was the only person who had the domain knowledge and also experience with working with Voyager images. Uh, 
on those kinds of rings, so I knew exactly what to do. You have to understand, Voyager <clears throat> was conducted at a period of time when we knew nothing about the outer solar system. So when they brought together a team of scientists who were gonna be on the Voyager imaging team in the 1970s, they didn't know then. They needed people who knew something about celestial mechanics so we could have people that were experienced enough to study what we found in the rings. They didn't know we were going to need a Uranus flyby, which was going to happen nine years later, if it happened at all. They didn't know they were going to need expertise in why rings can be narrow. And you know what I'm saying? Right. They had to add people as the mission went along based on the discoveries that happened over that decade. So, and so I, I, we're still going to get data until like, the, like 2025, 2020, something it like that? It could be. Well, 2020 for sure. It all depends on the power source. And I know that the people who are in charge of the mission now, it's very down, it's down to just a few people, but the project manager is so keen to keep Voyager alive until its 50th anniversary that she's managing power. You know, you could use less of it and let it go on for longer. But it's a radioactive power source, and those things decline with time, in fact, at a predictable rate. And so it should... It, it should, especially if she manages it the way that she said, it should go out to about 2030. And then probably by then it'll start, you know, they'll start winking out. And then, then we won't hear from them again. <laughs> Neil, by the way, Neil and I go back long ways. We met, the first time we met, I don't know if you remember it. I remember it. We met at the symposium in honor of Carl's 60th birthday. Mm. Do you remember that? You were there. Was that you the were, first time we met? You were there at, yes, you were there with your wife. Okay. Yeah. And mm -hmm. um, and that's how far we go back. That was 19, I told it. Yeah, I was going to ask you what year it was. I think that was like 1994. Oh, okay. Or 1993, right. something like that. So much has happened. So much has changed as a species. I'm just curious, like, what what is on that record right now? Do you think it still represents who we are? Do you think if anyone did find this as an artifact, do you think it would be meaningful in the, in the way that it was meant to two be. Two separate know. questions. We have not evolved very much at all in those 40 years that the record is suddenly or even gradually not relevant. It, it describes us. It's just, it's pictures The record doesn't of, have hip-hop. Ah, there you go, there you go. <laughs> it has Chuck Berry, though. Yeah. Close. That's close, yeah. Hip-hop so, was invented after... The record is conceived. <laughs> okay, I didn't think about that. I'm thinking more like, you know, biologically we haven't, haven't It's still got some classics on it. I'll just move forward. So if you were to send out a similar probe now and a golden record now, like what would be the differences? What would be, would we put some, would we do virtual reality? Would we, like what would we do? Very, very good question because I toyed with this for a while thinking about maybe putting something on Cassini, which wasn't going to go out of the solar system. It was just going to go to Saturn. You know, probe was going to land on the moon Titan. It's a very interesting intellectual exercise to, to just think about how you would communicate with an organism that you don't know you have anything in common with except you live in the same universe. And how would you communicate? What would you communicate to them? On the Voyager record, it also has on the face of it, it's got inscribed. It's got inscribed graphics that the creators thought, you know, the the recipients would understand because they were using 
diagrams about the relationships, like geometry, the relationships. If I remember, I hope I'm not confusing the Pioneer plaque with the Voyager record, but it, it was a way to decipher where in the galaxy the Earth was based on the position of pulsars, which are these stars which give, which, you know, flash. I, I have one in my office. I'll get it. Oh, yeah. wow, cool. So A pulsar? I'm just joking. No. <laughs> so um, they gave a lot of thought to what would be in common. And, you know, what? It, 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 this is a long, involved thing, believe me. Uh, it would take a long time to go through it all, and I'd have to remember because some of these things I've just forgotten. Well, no, I'm just trying to get a sense of, like, so now that you've seen everything, like, you know, even just something like hip-hop, but like the Internet, VR, all these different technologies. I don't like, know that it would be necessary to, I mean, it is true. What do you need to say? Mm. Um, I... The music was, remember, it's a cultural artifact. It's mm. supposed to, it's really, in some sense, a message to us because we don't know that anyone will pick it up. It, it, it's significant to us, certainly. So for, to think about, you know, our music, which is, you know, emotionally driven thing that humans create, pictures of Earth, which is where we live, pictures of us, um, those you can imagine as being important. Whether every single type of music is represented is probably less important. That we have music is probably important in the sense mm -hmm. of saying that we have art. Um, this is the plaque from Pioneer, but everything on this Pioneer plaque was on the Voyager plaque, and, and in addition to other things on the Voyager plaque. Well, did, so, they, did they put representation of naked figures? Yes, on? this whole thing. Oh, yep. Uh -huh. Is that true? <laughs> uh oh, get Google. Google, I forget. I'm bet. No, I'm not betting. But you you seem you seem to you seem to cocksure yourself. I'm not betting. Okay. Diagram on Voyager Golden Record. <laughs> okay, let's see. Golden record, golden record. Well, which would be the best here? This is probably Wikipedia is going to be the best. See, no naked humans. Yeah, you're right. Nah, 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 nah. Yeah, no naked humans. So you have this, the pulsar diagram, and you have this up here, which is also very important. That's the hydrogen atom. Right. Yes. So... I mean, would they understand arrows or whatever these things are? You know, would they would they understand that this is are the the distances in some kind of code to the pulsars and the frequencies? You know, this is kind of like a way of saying we live at the at the intersection of all these lines of sight to these uh, these particular stars that pulse. But you know, it it all it almost doesn't matter. It's it's like I said, it's the intellectual exercise that is so is so interesting. And this is what the the, the real thing the looks void. like. Well, this was real too. It went on the predecessor this is spacecraft. Scale. This is scale size. Okay. You mean this is the way yeah. the size yeah. of it? How'd you get this? Were you given this by as a gift by someone? I'm director of a planetarium. This is this is part of an exhibit of the previous planetarium uh, array of exhibits. But well, where did this come from? JPL? You know? No, no. It's an it's an exhibit item. It's a replica of the plaque. Oh, a replica. Okay, okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Can you speak to kind of like the importance of the original mission and just recognizing the passing of the anniversary and kind of like what it means for where personally, we stand now? Personally, I'm not a big anniversary guy. Um, oh. Oh, sorry. <laughs> anniversaries kind of 
ask you to look backwards rather than forwards. And so um, generally I'm, I stay mute when people, I don't want to get in the way of people celebrating, but for me, I always try to look forward. The, uh, what I found is that if you look backwards too often, that becomes your excuse, that becomes your evidence that you care, but then nothing happens going forward. Can you unpack that evidence that you care? Well, With you regard can, you to can this. convince yourself that by celebrating anniversaries that you care mm-hmm. about the subject. But if you really care about the subject, you might also do that, but you will primarily be planning future missions. Okay, so to that end... But we are planning future missions, so we care enough. You have a whole movie about something that was 40 years ago. That's, all that's okay, but it was a beautiful thing that, that young people don't know a lot about, so we want them to know, too. This is true. I picked that up on stage. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, to that end, looking forward, I mean, do you think, whether it's NASA or international space agencies, do you think we're in the same, I guess, adventurous, trailblazing mindset now that would, you know, would, you know, are we still doing this kind of thing now? And are we still looking to space in the same way, in the same aggressive way? Or are we, are we... You know, I mean, because you, you know kind of, it's almost like a leading question, you know. Yeah, we, we are still exploring space. We have missions going to Mars once every two years. We, getting to the outer solar system is more difficult. Remember what we're talking about is the sun is at the center of, all the planets orbit the sun because of the sun's gravity. And you can think of it as being at the bottom of a well, okay? You can go, and, and you know, our Earth is one ring up, okay? So um, this is a cup, sun at the bottom, Okay. Our Earth is here. You go out to Mars, it's up here. You go out to Jupiter, it's up here. So you have to climb up this well to get to Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune. That's why it's very infrequent we get to the outer solar system because it's costly in terms of time, in terms of energy. We're still propelling ourselves around the solar system with chemical energy. So it takes time and it takes investment. So Chemical energy is rocket fuel. Yeah. Yeah, chemical reactions. (laughs) Explosions. Are you are you are you are you excited about the uh, the Falcon Falcon Heavy? I'm excited about anything that hasn't been done before. Do you do you think that represents Falcon Heavy represents something that hasn't been done before? It represents a it represents a an engineering solution that has no precedent. That's correct. What engineer? What's the Falcon Heavy? It's a chemical, isn't it? Well, no, no. So so of course, but um, I'm referring to the goal the laudable goal of doing it and accomplishing it at a fraction of the cost that would have ever happened before. And as is true for so many things, if you can reduce the cost, it opens up other opportunities that would have been aced out by a more expensive um, means of accomplishing. So let me, let me unpack what he just said. To do it with NASA is a lot of money because NASA's got, you know, a long history now of having... A lot of checks and quality assurance and risk avoidance and all that stuff so that they ensure success. The commercial outfits, they, they wanted to succeed too, but they didn't put so much emphasis on not having any failures. NASA was like that. NASA was really nimble in the beginning. I mean, I could just, you know, spend all night talking about what happened in the early days of Apollo when they could change direction on a dime. They didn't have to go get some senator or congressman to approve it. They could just do it. They were given the rights to do it. They could even fail to some degree and not, you know, have a major thing happen. But NASA's become very risk averse. 
So um, that makes it more costly. But the, the new missions wanting to get off the ground, they weren't so much like that, and so they've gone far. The thing that stuns me that I think is the coolest thing is that the goddamn rockets, excuse my no. French, they go up and they come back down and they land yeah, yeah. in the ocean. I mean, holy cow. On a platform. Yeah, on a platform. On a platform in the, yeah. in the ocean. Like, who would have ever thought? I wouldn't have thought of that. Yeah. So that was, uh, that's remarkable. So, that's I mean, remarkable. when I think about Voyager, I think about the spirit that launched it, at least what I think is a, was, was the spirit. Now that you're putting private companies, not putting, they are essentially taking over space travel only, in many Only ways. to lower what's called low Earth orbit. So, so, so that's that's so my question. Far, so, so far, I mean, it looks it's looking like the future is. Uh, are you familiar Waylon Yutani? Do you know the, that reference? Waylon Yutani, the alien uh, franchise, is basically based around you know space exploration, but it's all you know sponsored by this giant mega corporation, and it almost is. It's looking like that might be the future instead of governments uh, based on science and, and exploration, maybe. Uh, space is ruled by commerce. Well, you see, that scares the hell out of me. Um, because we, we were just talking before about this. I, to have private, the pri- private industry rule anything scares me. Okay, They need to be beholden to the people on the planet. Uh, I can't see private industry, you know, in and of themselves feeling that way. But I, I still want to support private industry getting into space because it will, like Neil said, it will happen... Faster, I think, than um, than government. I I want to see both, actually. To be mm. honest with you, I'd like to see both. So, and there are private industries that uh, private individuals with lots of money uh, who are interested, for example, in pursuing one of the scientific questions that has been left now with us uh, as we see the end of the Cassini mission. You didn't mention the Cassini mission. You're aware we're at Saturn and we're about to. Send the spacecraft into the drink. A 27-year mission is over. Okay, 13 years at Saturn will come to an end. One of the questions that we are left with is whether or not there is life on the small moon Enceladus. Right? I saw the. I saw your talk about that. Yeah. Okay. The conditions for life are, yeah, there. are there. Of course, yeah. Are there? Okay. Oh, the, the the basic conditions. There's still others that have to be met before you could even hope that life would be there. And we want to make sure those are there, like the second tier. But the first tier are all there. It's the only, it's the only place in the solar system besides the Earth that checks all the boxes. Mars doesn't check all the boxes. Europa doesn't check all the boxes. It's the only place. We, it's the one we know the best because we've been there for 13 years. And private, there are a number of uh, high, high net worth individuals, is what they're called, in Silicon Valley, who are very interested in conducting a privately funded mission back to Enceladus to search for life. Can you name some no, of can't. those? Okay. No, I can't. It's not at that stage yet, and nothing... She, she just won't. That's <laughs> very clear. Nothing has... I mean, it's just being examined now. There's no, okay, we're doing it. Here's the money. Go off and make this happen. That hasn't happened yet. But I take it as very... Uh, just a, a very important uh, juncture that we've reached where private funders are not just thinking about going to low Earth orbit, which is kind of like the small change stuff that NASA doesn't need to be involved in anymore. Been there, done that, we want to do the bigger stuff. We'll leave the going to space station, going to low Earth orbit to private industry. Now they want to take on, the private funders want to take on these much bigger, more expensive missions. So I don't, just, well, just in search for that, just to be the ones, I guess, to say, you know, 
We've, we've pushed the ball down the field. We've gotten closer to, to finding life. Well, Carolyn, in one sentence, you mix two things that I think shouldn't be mixed. So uh, we need to distinguish private industry that will not likely do anything unless there is some kind of expected return on that investment. And then there's high net worth private people who might do it as a vanity project with no expectation of it becoming a business model. Yes, you're right. That's, I did These are say two different mm, things. Because they're the not going to private get... is used in both contexts. Yes. Private industry, private citizens. He's right. He's right. Private, but, yeah. There's no money that so far the people who are interested in going back to Enceladus are not doing it because they're going to get a profit. They're doing it because they really want to support the science. And I would add, meanwhile, directly to your question, for me, I don't see any arc of action that would lead private industry that would... In, that would enable private industry to lead our presence in space. So you don't think asteroid mining is viable as a pursuit? That's not what I said. Okay. So uh, let, me, let me be more precise. In space, to do anything first is expensive. It's dangerous. And there's no turn, return on an investment. So that's true for most things that are expensive that people have done in the past. And so the history of these expensive adventures have been first conducted by government. So Columbus is sent by Spain, not by private enterprise. There was some private money helping the, the crown, but the motivation was national. Once he crossed the Atlantic and came back and said where the trade winds are and the hostels and the friendlies and how long it took and what resources were there, once that was done, now there's information that a private company can use to mitigate their risk. And only then did you have the Dutch East India Trading Company. The Dutch East India Trading Company are not going to be the first anywhere. They're going to be second, third, fourth, more likely fifth. When SpaceX sent cargo to the space station, newspaper headlines were, new era of space, will they lead the way into the future? They're doing what NASA's been doing for 40 years. You bring something on Earth to orbit. Can they do it cheaper? Yes. That's the value of this. Can they do it faster or more nimbly? Yes. That's the value. Elon Musk talks, let's send humans to Mars. It may be that he builds the ship that NASA then pays for to go to Mars. But there's no business model for Elon Musk to go to Mars first. So you don't think he's going to go on his own? But on his own devices, not compelled by some or servicing if he goes, some even, even his SpaceX company is funded. I mean, he's... Yeah. he's the, 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 the money is, cross, is crossing membranes there. The, again, let me be more precise. If he goes to Mars first, it will not be on any expectation that that will generate money for him. It will be a vanity project. It'll be a one-off. He wants to die on Mars. Yeah, and that's fine. But for people to think that him doing that is opening some business frontier, that's, my, that's the point I'm trying to disavow gotcha. people of. Gotcha. And so it's a short VC meeting, right? You got your venture capitalists sitting around the table. They said, what do you want to do, Mr. Musk? I want to go to Mars. How much will it cost? A trillion dollars. He's going to do it on the cheap, half a trillion dollars. <laughs> is it dangerous? Yes. Will people die? Probably. What's the return on investment? Uh, I don't know. Probably nothing. It's a five-minute meeting. Right. End of meeting. And so he has to either spend his own money and do it as a vanity project or he wait for the governments to do it so that he then knows exactly how much it will cost. 
and, and use patents that the government paid for. And maybe they're his patents, but he didn't pay for them. The government will pay for that because the government decides for whatever reasons, militaristic, defense, um, hegemonistic, whatever, that they want to go to Mars in the same way we said we want to go to the moon. Science didn't drive that. Understood. Back to the asteroid question. Do you think? Oh, yeah. So, so, right. So we've been to asteroids. We've landed on asteroids with tax-based missions. Europe has done. We haven't landed yet, have we? Or um, we, the United States? Say the ESA has with Philae. I said United States. Oh, we, we gently landed the near spacecraft on the I remember near. Right, yeah. right, right, right. Yeah. So we do that a few more times. Now private industry will know how to do it. It's not their dime that did it first. They'll do it second, third, fourth. So if they, in now, order in order for them to do what Neil is saying NASA does now, they would have to be able to not only pull together the resources to conduct this mission, they need to support a viable, healthy scientific enterprise, right? They'd have to do that all on their own, which is what NASA has been doing for years. Right, and so, so they're not going to do it. So so once once all the documents are established and the risk factors and and the the orbital trajectories where because you're launching off of a moving Earth. And then you deploy something that's moving onto something else that's moving. All of that gets figured out. Now, someone says, I want to go mine asteroids. They're going to use all those data and patents that the government pay for. And then the first trillionaire will be the first person who mines asteroids. Sure. Yeah, in fact, there is, a, there is a very, I think, good, generous spirit that I've been able to see among NASA, at NASA, to help these industries. Oh, so, yeah. so they it's, do It's in the charter now. It's in the amended... Mission statement for NASA that they need that, to help that, and pass information. Yes, that happened the in the nineteen under Reagan. Yes. Oh. Okay. Yes. Okay. Well, anyway, that's what they do. So there is this. In other words, the, there's the, now the, a vehicle for the this to the exchange between the interest of private enterprise and NASA is made uh, more fluid than ever before in recent decades, but not in the early days. Yeah. So I know our time is running out, right? Yeah. So just last question, just. I don't have a child, but if I had a five-year-old kid, why does my kid, why should my kid care about this film? Why should my kid put this, Because you know? Because it's a story about how a bunch of people did something that at the time was so freaking impossible. You would have thought it was so impossible, and they pulled it off. It, it, we knew nothing. We knew nothing about the outer solar system. We didn't know a spacecraft could last 10 years in space. The spacecraft was so far away that to send a message to the spacecraft, hey, turn the camera, takes at Saturn an hour and a half. At Uranus, took three hours. At Neptune, takes four hours just to send a, one, a one-way communication. To get the message back, hey, I did it, it worked, or uh-oh, it didn't work, is another four hours. How do you operate a spacecraft to respond to emergencies like that? You don't. You make the spacecraft autonomous. They didn't know how to build autonomous spacecraft, and yet they did it, and they pulled it off. There were so many of these things. Some of them get mentioned in the film. It's just the story of an adventure, like making it up as we went along. And that, I'm getting chills just talking about it, because it really, it was such a joy for me to remember how remarkable Voyager was. And every step of the way, it's like, on this trip, it's come to be called the holy shit moments. It's like, <laughs> holy shit. Look at that, like volcanoes on Io. We thought the moons were dead. Volcanoes on Io. Our moon is dead. Why wouldn't anybody what, see the moon On be dead? Triton, the farthest moon out there. Like, you know, light is one one thousandth of what it is here on the Earth. And yet we have geysers. I don't know if they're technically geysers, but these 
these plumes of material that rise from the surface of Triton, probably frozen nitrogen, up 15 kilometers, 10 miles in the air, and then it takes off with the winds. It blows on, on a moon in the outer solar system, and we th it was true exploration. Tr truly, last question. Mm -hmm. Is there, do you get You're any kind of... <laughs> do you see... so, so you really need to encourage people to watch this film, and right after this film, is going to be, a which is an hour and 40 minutes, there's going to be a 20-minute mini-documentary called Second Genesis. I'm plugging this because I'm the subject of it, and it's about me wanting desperately to have another mission back to Enceladus to search for life. So it really is kind of builds on what, we, what happened with Voyager. Voyager showed us what's in the outer solar system. We found, as one example... But just to be clear, it's not about her <laughs> wanting to send a mission. It's about her convincing you that it's a good idea. Um, okay, it's, I don't know, we'll see how it, what, what would you say? Oh, I you saw it. it. Yeah, oh. I saw it this afternoon. Okay. It's about me convincing the public that yes. we should do it? Yes. Okay. It's not about, it's not, let's come see what Carolyn wants. No. She's speaking with a level of passion and enthusiasm that is palpable through the camera. And you will say, gee, I want to do that, too. Really? Did you think that? Yes. You think, well, I want to help my good buddy, Carol. <laughs> Let's go to tell And my, super, my ex absolutely last question is, are we going to do this again with, like, an automated probe? How, are we doing do it? What Maybe a, do what again? Something like Voyager, where we put an artifact, a cultural artifact that contains all of human history. Uh, is that already in play? Am I just not well, aware? Well, you know what? In fact, I toyed with the idea of doing it for Cassini, and that project came to an end. You know... There are certain things you do once and you don't do it again. I mean, it, it, you could do it again, but it's not going to have the same effect. You know, it was that first time. And the, the possibility that any civilization is going to pick up this tiny machine going through the emptiness of space is almost next to nothing. It, it was really a gesture that was meant to resonate with people back home and give them a sense of belonging to the cosmos, which we do. So that's how I... That's that's money right there. What you just said, yeah, that's okay. amazing. Yeah, but that's not why it's not going to happen. Please, <laughs> okay. sir. Please, sir. Uh, our last opportunity to have done that was the New Horizons mission. Okay. Um, unlike in the 1970s, where the very term "flyby" was generic. Oh, go flyby. Let's do that. Oh, what's what are you going to fly by? When you do a flyby, you overtake your destination and you continue out on the other side and you wait years and years and years and you have a week of good data mm -hmm. and then it goes beyond. Voyager exploited a multiple gravitational assist to ultimately give it enough energy to escape the solar system entirely. And that was the motivation to put signals on it, information on it that could be captured by aliens. New Horizons isn't going to do that? I said New Horizons was the last opportunity that that could have happened. Oh, oh okay. Okay? There is, no, there is no plan to send another mission with escape velocity from the solar system. No, that's not true. Uh, breakthrough Starshot, but it's a little, it's not a, a spacecraft. Oh, okay. I was thinking NASA, but. Oh, right. okay. Okay. Right. So, so um, at what missions, missions typically do today is what Cassini did, because we, we make them big and muscle, m muscular. They go to the destination, they slow down, pull into orbit, and they hang out. So, that, so, so they're not escaping the solar system. And we, we're pretty sure there are no aliens in the solar system. So to put messages for aliens on something that doesn't leave the solar system doesn't make sense. So the motivation to do it on Voyager was because it had escape velocity. 
And this had, so there have been five objects that had escape velocity. Pioneer 10, which this was on. Pioneer 11, which had an identical plaque. Voyager 1 and Voyager 2, take out the naked people, put in a few of this. <laughs> Those two missions, and they each had messages to aliens, as this is a message to alien. I don't know, I don't think um, New Horizons did. Well, this is a sad story. I was intending to put something on New Horizons, but my friend killed it. And you don't have to say which one. I, I think we all know. Yeah. Do we have a sense of when the next opportunity might be for the escape velocity? Conditions? It's not an opportunity. Is why in modern times, why would you spend ten years to spend two weeks flying by an object? You want to go and hang out there and land on it and observe it. Cassini's legacy is not that it had two weeks of data; it's that it had thirteen years of data. Yeah. So, it, 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 what Neil is referring to is that in 1958, when NASA was established, it was already outlined how it was going to go about exploring the solar system. First stage, reconnaissance flybys. Reconnaissance, yeah. by the way, is a term from the military because NASA was actually derived from a military uh, committee. So reconnaissance, which is what Voyager was, which was what New Horizons was at Pluto. You just rapidly pass by, take a lot of pictures, take a lot of data, and that's it. The next stage is orbiters. Because orbiters allow you to, like, get in, you know... Now like that you have basic information derived from the flyby, now you can design the next generation mission to exploit is, that. To exploit it, and you exploit also, mm -hmm. you have the leisure of being there a long period of time and, like, silently monitoring everything. And that's when you really come to know something in depth. And then if it makes sense to do so, the third step, going all the way back to this charter in 1958, is sample return. You can pick up rocks from the surface and bring them back to Earth. That's a cool thing to do. I, I'm, I would say we've embellished the whole thing now. I think landers are taking on a big role. Um, but, but anyway, so, but it's right. Um, there probably won't be a lot of flybys that... We're done flying by every important object in the solar system. We have, we have basically now explored our entire solar system. If you talk about categories of objects... Hmm. We've explored asteroid belt. We've explored the Kuiper belt. That's what Pluto was a representative of. We've done all the planets. We've we've visited and even landed on comets. So um, we, we've come a long way in 60 years. It's going to be 60 years. Here's okay. a stat for you. 27 years. We've landed on, on Saturn's moon, <laughs> Titan. Yeah. We have a we've even landed on a moon in the outer <laughs> yes. solar system. I appreciate the time. Thank you so okay. much. That was great. That was a treat. What's interesting about everything we talked about is that just recently, uh, Voyager is in the news again. Apparently, NASA was able to get a response from the Voyager space or one of the Voyager spacecrafts just, I think, like a couple of weeks ago. There's still new news coming from Voyager. That's how amazing, that's how important this mission has been to the history of humanity and science in general. And now you're a part of it by listening in. And you can keep up to date with the podcast and what's going on with it on Twitter by visiting twitter.com slash Mars Magazine. Uh, you can follow me at Adario Strange, twitter.com slash A-D-A-R-I-O-S-T-R-A-N-G-E. Or you can go to the website, marsmagazine.com for old episodes. Also, if you're a YouTube head, if you, let's say, prefer to listen to podcast episodes, through YouTube, as I do sometimes, even if they're in audio form, uh, we do have episodes on YouTube. So check us out there too. And we're also on Google Play, Stitcher, and of course, iTunes and SoundCloud. So 
check out the archives. There's a lot of great stuff waiting for your sci-fi, sci-tech brain to consume. And with that, this has been the Mars Magazine Podcast, and we will see you in the future.